John 4.24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I've mentioned this verse in reference to learning these doctrines or truths about God, and today we will learn about this idea of God being spirit. This is the Doctrine for Doxology podcast. Now, this information is based off of a class that I teach at church, and it's a small group or a life group, or if you're really old school, you would call it Sunday school, and that's what I like to call it, Sunday school class. Uh, anyway, so it's the, the same material, so you can email me if you ever have a question or comment. Uh, you can email me doctrine4, that's the number four, doxology at gmail.com, doctrine4doxology at gmail.com. Uh, you can also just follow me personally on Instagram at the Real Bear Martin. So far, we've been discussing the nature and, and character of God, the, the essence of God, if you will. What is God? The being of God. God. So we've so far we've covered that God exists, of course. Uh, but not only does God exist, He is self-existent or assay. Uh, this is, brings us to the doctrine of the aseity of God. God does not depend on anything for His existence, and everything else depends on God for their for its existence. Okay, so that that is the aseity of God. We talked about that last week. Also, God is incom. Comprehensible. No created being can ever know God in an exhaustive way. Uh, certainly, we will know God in a, a creaturely fullness. Um, we, we will know all this in, in glory, but we will never know God the way God knows God. There, there's still this divide between God as creator and us as created beings. We are creatures. So by that alone, God will always be incomprehensible. Today, we will mainly focus on the biblical teaching that God is spirit. Now, this simple fact that God is spirit is clearly stated in John 4, 24. Uh, but just to kind of pick up that discussion, I want to start in John 4, verse 7. And so Jesus is at a well in Samaria. He is tired from a journey. And there's a woman there that has come to draw water. So in John 4, verse 7, we pick up here, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So there's a little like parenthetical. If you're reading in your Bible, there's a little parenthetical note there from John as he's writing this gospel so that the reader knows that there, there certainly was tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. It says here, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, this would seem to contradict verse 8. John 4, 8 says, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, obviously, the the author of the Gospel of John is not going to contradict himself in one verse, okay? And so how do we make sense of this? Very likely, this is referring to when the woman said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? 
This was likely talking about Jesus drinking after her, using the same cup or the the same vessel that she used to get water out of the well. This would have made Jesus unclean according to the, the Pharisees' laws of the time. So there was a Pharisaical law, and, and it's it's reference it references Leviticus 15. And basically, the, the law of the time was that the Samaritans were considered perpetually unclean. They, it, they were always unclean. And so anything like, like if a, a Samaritan used a cup to drink out of, because they're touching that cup, they're, they're unclean. Leviticus 15 talks about how like uh, discharge, uh, a discharge of semen from men, when women are on their menstrual cycle, if they lay on a bed, then that bed is considered unclean. Anyone who touches that bed is considered unclean. And so the Pharisees had taken Leviticus 15 and, and made these laws about Jews not drinking after um, Samaritans and, and using the same vessels in that way. So this this is why this woman was startled by Jesus' question, because she, she says, how is it that you, a Jew, are going to drink after me, basically, um, use the same vessel? Now, the Jews and Samaritans were religious enemies, we'll say. Around 722 BC, Assyria conquered the region of Samaria and took many Israelites into exile. So Samaria was part of the um, the Israelite nation, the, that, that nation split into the northern and southern kingdoms, and so the northern kingdom con- contains Samaria. So that region was conquered by Assyria, and a lot of people, a lot of the Israelites were taken away into exile. The people who remained, which were very likely that mostly the very poor, uh, they ended up intermarrying with the pagan people who kind of came in and began inhabiting this region of Samaria. When the Israelites returned from exile, there was a lot of animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. Basically, the Samaritans were considered by the Jews to be half-breeds, okay? We can read all about this in 2 Kings 17, as well as in Ezra 4. And so when the the Jews were going to rebuild the temple as they come, come back from exile, the Samaritans wanted to help and the Jews rejected their help. We don't, we don't need you. You're not part of our nation. Uh, that type of thing. And so this animosity built between the two. So that's why there's, there's the Jews did not associate with the Samaritans. Now, a, a really funny story that I heard from Doug Bookman, who is a, a seminary professor at a local college, Shepherd's Theological Seminary. He um, teaches the life of Christ, and I, I was listening to a lecture series by him, and he was talking about some of this, uh, the, the Jews and Samaritans. And so the Jews are on a lunar calendar, and sometimes to keep track of the different festival days, there would be these smoke signals throughout the land to to tell everybody, okay, this is the day that we're going to start counting, like this would be the first day of the month, right? And so on the 14th of Nisan, for instance, that's Passover. So th- there were different ways of the the Jews, you know, keeping keeping their calendar straight. And and so these smoke signals were one way they would use that. And so Doug Bookman was talking about this and he said that the Samaritans would often um, send off like fake smoke signals to confuse the Jews' uh, religious calendar and, and different things like that. So there's lots of little, lots of little, uh, lots of animosity between the two groups. It, let's, let's just put it that way. So anyway, 
that's just a kind of some background on why the Samaritans and the Jews were did not get along, did not really interact with each other a whole lot. Now, what's obvious though is the disciples went into town to buy food from from people in the city. And so there must have been at least some interaction between the Jews and Samaritans, but drinking after a Samaritan would have would have certainly been a, a no-no. Um, again, the Pharisees, the, the Pharisaical laws of the time that you would have been considered unclean. So this was a big deal for Jesus to ask this woman for a drink. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, this is John 4.10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, as you're studying the Bible, you should come across when you come across this phrase, he would have given you living water. What does Jesus mean by this phrase, living water? Well, I think the author of the gospel tells us very plainly a few chapters later in John 7, 38 and 39, Jesus is speaking. He says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John tells us, now this he said about the Spirit, that's capital S, about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So John, throughout the gospel, gives us these nice little insights here that help help us follow along. So Jesus is talking about this living water, that is the Holy Spirit, that those who believe in Jesus are, are given the Holy Spirit, they, they receive the Holy Spirit, and so that's what Jesus is talking about there. If, if you would have known who you're talking to, you would have asked me and I would give you living water. Now, this is a great example. You know, what does living water mean? What is Jesus talking about? This is a great example of something I talked about a few weeks ago called the analogy of faith. This is the idea that we always interpret scripture using scripture. So, just a Bible study tip whenever you are studying a, a difficult phrase or something you're not sure of, look at the cross references that are associated with that phrase or that verse. And also, there's plenty of Bible study programs on, online for free. Um, I have a, a downloadable program on my computer called Logos Bible Software. That's excellent. But anyway, lots of programs out there that let you search when certain phrases um, are used in Scripture, and you can read all those verses, and sometimes it really helps you get an idea of what the um, what that verse is talking about. And here, it's extremely clear. We have the same author just a few chapters later, and Jesus is speaking in both instances, and he's talking about this living water in the same context, uh, the same um, context of eternal life and having this living water. So we're, we know just by studying our Bible that this is what Jesus is talking about, the Holy Spirit. He's the one who gives the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus is also talking on a a spiritual level with this woman, and she is still on a physical level. So the woman says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? And so... You know, again, she's on a physical. She's thinking physically. Jesus is speaking spiritually, and this happens throughout the Gospel of John several times. Jesus is is talking on a spiritual level, and the people he's talking to just at first they don't get it, and so, sometimes they never 
grasp it. Um, but one example of this would be in the chapter previous, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So again, Jesus is on a spiritual level, and often the people he's talking to at first are, are thinking about things on a on a physical level. Now, how blessed are we to be able to read the the full story to to have to have the full story it's easy to look back on Nicodemus and the woman at the well and you know how did they not get it how did they not understand but um, this is all happening in real time for them we we have the advantage of having scripture and being able to to read all these stories uh, from a, a step back and so um, try to keep that in mind as you're as you're studying the Bible now, picking up in John 4, 12, the woman asked Jesus, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So this well that they're at was dug by Jacob, and the Samaritans claimed to, to be true descendants of Jacob or, or Israel through the line of Joseph. And so she's, she's saying, Our father Jacob dug this well and and here we are drinking of it she's making this this claim to be you know linked in with Israel Jacob and so that's that's one of the things that the samaritans were claiming for themselves and she says are you greater than our father Jacob and Jesus is going to answer her question in a roundabout way you have to read through the lines but Jesus says this in in response to her question think about this are you greater than our father Jacob Jesus says in verse 13 Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, meaning the the water from this well that Jacob dug. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus certainly answers the woman's question. He's saying, I am definitely greater than your father, Jacob. I I give, you know, everyone who drinks of Jacob's well will be thirsty again, but I give water that, that leads to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And then Jesus, as you're reading this, Jesus says something that is, I think, quite unexpected, but there's certainly a purpose to it. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So this woman, follow what's going on here. This woman asked for the water. She says, okay, give me this living water so that I will never be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Uh, she's still still on a, a physical level. And Jesus says, okay, go call your husband and, and come here. Now, what Jesus is doing there is he is showing her sin in her own life. She's, he's showing her sin because the person who has eternal life, the Holy Spirit has worked in their heart to show them the sin that they have and their need for a savior. When when you when you see God for who he is and you see yourself for who you are, you stand before the throne of God like Isaiah, woe is me. I am I am undone. I am 
unworthy. I, you know, you you, you realize that you deserve the the wrath of God, the punishment of God. You just you deserve destruction and death. And so when when Jesus exposes her to her sin, this is for a purpose. You you cannot have eternal life through Jesus Christ unless you acknowledge that you are a sinner and you need a savior because that that is who Jesus is. So he he calls out the sin in this woman's life and then she of course does the classic thing when when sin is called out. She changes the subject to a theological debate that had probably been going on for centuries, okay? Verse 19 the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So again, the Samaritans, uh, thinking that they are the the pure line from Israel, the, the true, the true um, descendants of Jacob, they're, they're drinking from Jacob's well, they worship, they set up their own place of worship for, for God, Yahweh, on their, this mountain. And so she's saying, we worship here, but you say, that is the, the Jews, and Jesus being a Jew would, would agree, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So this is, this is probably a theological debate of the times, constantly between the Jews and Samaritans. What's the true place of worship? Jesus answers her, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. A couple things here. The Samaritans, they their scripture was only the first five books of the Old Testament. They, they rejected the Psalms and the prophets as scripture. And so, uh, first off, they do, they do not know the full revelation of God. They don't, they don't accept that as scripture. Jesus is, uh, you know, is possibly getting at that there. That's a difference between the, the theological beliefs of the, of the two groups. You worship what you do not know, and we worship, that is the, the Jews, worship what we know. They, they know the true revelation from God. But he also says, for salvation is from the Jews. So both groups, Samaritans and Jews, would have been expecting a Messiah. But Jesus says this salvation is going to be from the Jews. And certainly he is from the Jews. He's the, the line of David. You can you can read um, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke and see the, the lineage of Jesus. So Jesus is from the Jews. Continuing on with his answer, verse 23, Jesus says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So she asked this theological question, should we worship God here on this mountain, or should we worship God in Jerusalem on, you know, on your mountain, and on the Jews' mountain? And Jesus says, neither. He says, the, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers of God will worship the, the Father in spirit and in truth. And then he says, God is spirit. God is not attached to any physical location. And we're going to talk more about what it, what it means that God is spirit in just a second. But he's not attached to the Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem. He's not attached to those locations that you have to go there in order to truly worship God. You worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so we, you know, thinking about what the two groups consider scripture 
we worship God by knowing the the by accepting the full revelation of God um, from Himself. And in this case, this would be all of the Old Testament that is completed at this time. So we we worship God in the the truth of what God tells us in Scripture. Also, God is Spirit. He's not. Uh, con- confined to a certain location. And so our worship of God is deeper than some uh, travel to a physical location and performing uh, physical rituals. We we worship God inwardly in, in spirit and in truth. All right. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Okay, and so and and that's that's the end of the verses that I want to cover today. But of course, we know the rest of the story that the basically the whole village becomes believers in Jesus Christ through this woman's testimony. They come out and hear from Jesus themselves and believe. And so, uh, so that's that's the passage of Scripture where we we get this phrase: God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. Now, as far as an outline to discuss what what this means, God is spirit, I really like a lecture on the attributes of God by Steve Lawson, and this one is the spirituality of God. And so I like how he organizes um, his thoughts on this. So this this outline structure and some of the points here are from that lecture. So I just want to cite that as a, a source I'm using. When we consider the spirituality of God, God is spirit, a lot of times, and not just for the spirit, uh, for God being spirit, but a lot of the ways that we describe God are using negative terminology. Let, let me tell you what I mean. There's three basic points that I want to make that God is spirit. First, God is immaterial. And so what we're saying by that word immaterial, we're saying God is not material. He is not attached to matter. See how that's a negative way of saying it? God is not this, okay? Uh, Next, God is invisible. God is not visible. And God is infinite. That is, God is not finite. He has no limitations. See, a lot of times we can't fully understand from a positive point of view the the exact nature and essence of God because he is he is outside of time he's it's like saying God is eternal and then it's like trying to describe eternity we we oftentimes we can't describe it except in negative ways we say God did not have a beginning and he will not have an end see how we're we're using negatives to to try to uh explain truth about God because we can't fully wrap our head around the the positive aspect of God, okay? And so, first off, God is immaterial. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, in, in his essential being, God has none of the properties that belong to matter. God is not confined to any form or body. And so, God, again, is not material, okay? Now, try to think of a spiritual being, Okay, so think about that in your mind. If I said, think of a spiritual being, what first comes to your mind? Okay, I imagine a wispy vapor hovering in midair, right? So so no distinct form, but it's as if a, a soft breeze is sort of twisting a smoky haze over onto itself. Now, that's what I see in my mind, right? But even that is not a spirit being, truly spirit. A spirit being has zero 
matter associated with it. There, there are not even air molecules that are that make up a spirit being. There is no matter, nothing. Okay, so even even just imagining a spirit being is is tough to do. So God is spirit. He he is not attached to a a body or matter of any kind. Now, oftentimes in Scripture. God describes himself to us using figurative language and and says that he has human features, okay? This is God's way of communicating on our level, but we have to remember that God is spirit, okay? And these this figurative language is called anthropomorphisms. So just some examples real quick. Jeremiah 18:6 says, Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So God here says he has uh, a hand or hands, but he doesn't really have hands. It's just his way of communicating about himself. Second Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth. Okay, It's not like God has a set of eyes and he's, he's kind of scanning a, a the earth, like where's Waldo trying to find what he what he wants to see? No, but this is this is God's way of describing Himself so that we can understand somewhat um, who He is and what He does. Isaiah fifty three one: Who has believed what He has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord there would be His strength and His might, His His actions, and so He God doesn't really have arms but he's describing himself in that way. This is certainly a distinctive uh, difference between what Mormons believe about God and what Christians believe. So Latter-day Saints would say that, that God the Father has, is made of flesh and bones just like Jesus has flesh and bones. And so they, they, uh, assign, a, um, they assign matter to God's being. And so there's a, that's a, certainly a huge disagreement between what Latter-day Saints believe versus Christians, okay? A.W. Tozer says this about God being spirit. He says, God is spirit, and to him, magnitude and distance have no meaning. To us, they are useful as analogies and illustrations. So God refers to them constantly when speaking down to our limited knowledge. Okay. Now, because God is immaterial, he's not attached to matter, he, he has no limits by material things. He, he doesn't have a certain amount of muscles and a certain amount of bone, a, a certain amount of brain tissue that affects his thought process. He's not limited by matter in any way. So just to think about this concept that God is spirit, he's not attached to matter in any way. Um, think of when you use your imagination, is your imagination limited by matter? Well, in one sense, you can say, no, it's not. So, so I can imagine being anywhere on earth, and I am instantly there in my mind, okay? So I'm not limited. I don't have to get in a plane to fly to that place to imagine being there. So in, in that sense, I'm not limited. Um, I, can, I can imagine. My imagination is not um, matter, okay? I don't have to, again, don't have to get on a plane to fly there to imagine being there. But in another sense, yes, even my imagination is limited because I'm using my brain to imagine things. My brain brain is made up of matter, and there are actually physical processes which must occur in my brain in order for me to imagine anything. So my imagination is limited by those chemical reactions in my brain. 
Now, God, though, is not attached to any sort of body or brain or matter in any way. He is immaterial. So therefore, again, no limits for God. So God is immaterial. Second, God is invisible. As a spirit, God is invisible. 1 Timothy 1, 17 says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So God is spirit and immaterial, and he is invisible. We cannot know God by see, just looking and seeing him. We must rely on God's revelation in order to know about him. So God shows himself in creation. He has revealed who he is in the Bible, God's word, and also in Jesus Christ. And so John 1.18 speaks to this. It says, no one has ever seen God. And in, in Steve Lawson's lecture, he says, you know what that means? It means that no one has ever seen God. Now, the verse continues, the only God, and this is talking about Jesus, the Word, the second person of the Trinity, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so no one has actually seen God. God is invisible. He is spirit. So anytime scripture speaks of people seeing God, it must be referring to people seeing God manifesting himself in the material world. So this could be the burning bush or a very bright light, different things. God has shown himself in 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 the physical world, but they're not actually seeing God for who he is in his essence. And then... If, Ultimately, we have seen God in the flesh, and that would be Jesus Christ. So this led to some discussion in our Sunday school class. So let me just affirm a few things here, just so you're not, you don't think I'm going crazy. And then we will talk about this more when we get to the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, different things like that. So God is spirit. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are God, okay? And so Jesus is God, but Jesus took on flesh. There, so the, the way that I was talking about this question in class, I said, okay, in eternity past, before God created the heavens and the earth, okay, before Genesis 1-1, was Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God? And the answer is obviously yes, okay? So... At a certain point in time, the second person of the Trinity chose to become flesh, to take on flesh. But Jesus was God without the flesh, okay? So, so God is spirit, and Je so Jesus is spirit as well that took on flesh, okay? And so, look, so I'll just... Leave it right there and just hang with me for a few episodes, and we'll we'll hash that out even more, okay? Anyway, back to John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the only God. Again, this is talking about Jesus here. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This literally is Jesus has exegeted the Father, okay? He has, he has made him known. Jesus shows us about the Father uh, by taking on flesh, it, it says, if Jesus has taken on flesh, so that he, so that we can know about God 
on our level in, in something that we can understand. Jesus says in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In Colossians 1, 15, we're told that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews 1, 3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so if you want to know what God is like, the, the best chance we have, the, the fullest opportunity we have is to look to Jesus Christ, okay? Now, you may think, well, what about sometimes in the Old Testament when people claim to have seen the Lord, to have seen God? And a, a common, there, there's a few different um, examples, and so keep in mind that these are these are all going to be examples where God is showing himself. Yeah, people say I have I've seen God, but what they're actually seeing is God um manifesting himself in some sort of physical sense, like the burning bush, the 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 cloud, the pillar of light, the pillar of, of the cloud, um again, bright light, different things like that. One specific example that I thought of though is Isaiah 6 verses 1 through 5. So this says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That is, the, the word there is Yahweh. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord, again, Yahweh of hosts. So if you were to ask Yahweh, uh, excuse me, if you were to ask Isaiah, who did you see, Isaiah? Who did you see? Isaiah would say, I saw Yahweh. I saw the Lord. Okay. Now, Isaiah is then commissioned by God to go and preach to the people of Israel, but he but Isaiah is told by the Lord that the people will not believe. In and Jesus in John 12 is preaching as he always was, and the people are not believing his message. And so in John 12, 37 through 39, we're told Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, and this next quotation in John 12 is taken from this Isaiah 6 passage where Isaiah saw the Lord in his temple. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the King of hosts. It's from that same passage. But John is going to quote from it. He says in John 12, 40 through 41, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they with lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, who is the who is that talking about? That's talking about Jesus. Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of Jesus. Okay, so you would ask Isaiah, who did you see? Isaiah would say Yahweh, the the Lord. But John tells us that Isaiah saw the, the the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is Yahweh, and this this has um, big time ties when we talk about the Trinity. Okay, so again, hang in there. 
But that's just one example where you may be thinking, well, Isaiah said he saw the Lord, but then John tells us that no one's ever seen God. How, you know, what's going on there? Isaiah saw Jesus Christ, okay? Now, God is immaterial and God is invisible. And then the last one, it, all kind of wrapping up the, the that God is spirit, God is infinite, okay? Now, infinite means not finite. Finite means having limits or bounds. So to say that God is infinite means that he does not have limits or bounds. John Frame says God is free from any limitation and his attributes are supremely perfect without any flaw. So here's the thing. To say that God is infinite, you know, it that means that He does not have limits. But it's not just the negative. It's not that He just doesn't have limits. It's that that God perfects those. Uh, God is the perfect of those of His attributes. Okay, so hang with me. Thinking about not having limits. If I had instant access to every library, every teacher, every resource for learning, there would be no limits. There would be no restrictions to my knowledge. Yet, you, I would not be all-knowing. Okay? Now, with God, He is an infinite being. It's not just that He is unrestricted, that He doesn't have any limits or restrictions, but rather He, he is the complete and perfection of whatever we're talking about, of that knowledge, for instance, okay? So God has no limits. He is, he is infinite. Every quality of God is infinite. He, he is not limited by anything, and he perfectly uh, fulfills, completes, checks all the boxes. He is perfectly that, okay? So let me, let me just give you um, a, a little more on that. In Scripture, oftentimes when we think about this this idea of God being infinite, it, His infinity is usually attached to some other quality. So, so God being infinite, the the infinity of God is is more like an an adjective to describe other traits of God. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Psalm one forty seven five says, "Great is our Lord and abundant in power; His understanding is beyond measure." And so, this verse here is about God. God's infinite power and understanding, okay? Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This speaks of God being eternal. He is infinite and outside of any restrictions of time. He's not limited by time. Last one here, Jeremiah 23, 24. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? So this verse displays God's omnipresence. He fills heaven and earth. He is infinitely present, okay? So it's not just that God doesn't have restrictions, like, like God is in one place and there's nothing holding him back. He's not chained down, but he's still just in one place. No, when we say God is infinite, it's that there are no limitations or restrictions on God, and he also fills all of that. If we're talking about God's presence, he fills it all. All right, so hang with me. This is not just the idea that God is so big that he can stretch himself out to cover all of the universe. Okay, so um, think about like like pizza dough. God is not a, a massive amount of 
of pizza dough where he can stretch out and cover everything. And so wherever you are, God is there because there's one, you know, one trillionth part of God there with you because God is stretched out everywhere. Okay. That is not what we mean that God is infinite. What we're saying is that God is completely present in all those places. So me sitting here in my little cubby where I record with my microphone, I can truly say that God is fully present with me here. Not just, again, not just one one trillionth of God, not just a little piece of God here with me, but God is completely present here with me. He's not bound by any matter, uh, no material thing. So because he is immaterial, invisible, and infinite, He, God is here with me, and he is there with you. Right? If you're riding in your car down the road, you can say that God is completely present there with you. So that, again, I know that's, that's sort of a, a weird concept to think about, but I think oftentimes people think of God just being this really big thing that he stretches out everywhere. So he's sort of there, but like the majority of him is up in heaven or, you know, that type of thing. But we're told in scripture that God is with us and he will be with us. And so he is truly present there with you. And again, this is this is one of those ideas where when we learn about who God is, some of these deep concepts, it should strengthen our worship of God and our, our trust in God. God is there with you. So again, think of the uh, God's infinity, that, that God is infinite. Think of that more like an adjective for his other attributes. It, it, the infinity of God is is the omni in all of the descriptions about God, right? So God is omnipotent. That is, he has infinite power. His power is not limited. God is omniscient. He has infinite knowledge. His knowledge is not limited, and he, and he, is, he has perfect knowledge. God has infinite holiness, infinite goodness, infinite mercy, infinite wisdom, infinite love. And so um, so this infinity of God describes all of his attributes. He, he, he is the perfect of all of those things. Now, when you think about God having infinite mercy or infinite love, for instance, are, are there examples that you may think of where this doesn't seem to be true? And so when people look out at the world and see the horrible things happening, people automatically, non-believers will say, well, either God is all-loving, but not all-powerful, because you know they'll say either God has, he's all-powerful, but if he's all-powerful, he can't be all-loving, because look at all the horrible things in the world, right? Or they'll say, well, God is all-loving, but he must not be all-powerful, because if he was both, then certainly he would take care of all the problems in the world. So this is a, a common objection to, to the God of Christianity because peop, here's what happens. People are judging the, the standard of love. They're basing the standard of love and mercy and justice and all of those qualities. They're basing it on, the, on themselves, what they consider to be loving and merciful and wise and, and all of these standards. They're judging it by their own standard instead of judging it by God's standard. See, God is the standard. What he does is loving because he is love. He is the standard. What he does is merciful because he is mercy. And so we, we've got to, to judge things based on God's standard, not our own standard. We don't get to judge God. 
And so a, a, a quote that addresses this topic is by John Feinberg. This is from uh, his systematic theology book called No One Like Him, and it's in the section on the infinity of God. He says this, quote, "...infinite power does not obligate God to do every act he possibly can do. Infinite wisdom does not obligate him to do every wise thing possible. Infinite love does not require God to do every loving thing possible." Rather, being infinite in regard to these and other attributes means that he can perform such acts and that none of the actions he does displays impotence or contradicts love, mercy, justice, truth, holiness, etc. It is easy but wrong to think that because God has these qualities infinitely, he must do every loving, merciful, just act he is capable of doing. When God fails to do something he can do, we easily become angry and accuse him of wrongdoing, end quote. So again, as as you listen to that quote, just think, you cannot judge God's actions based on what you as a creature consider, oh, if God was loving, then he would definitely do this, okay? No, that is that is the wrong way to approach who God is. And it's the wrong way to think about God being infinitely loving, okay? Now, the the last thing I want to mention uh, quickly here is, is that God is personal. And so we've talked about how God is is with us. God acts in love and and mercy and justice. And so God is personal, the 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 personality of God. This is talking about person as a, from a, a philosophical standpoint. So I'm not just talking about, oh, God is so good. He has such a great personality. That, that's not the way I'm using that word. Um, here's a, a doctrinal statement on the personhood, the, the personalness of God. God's nature involves a mind, intelligence, will, reason, individuality, self-consciousness, and self-determination. And so... Uh, for scriptural proof, I mean, all you have to do is read the Bible and and just see over and over again that God is acting in a personal way. He is not an impersonal energy force, okay? In Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So in this simple verse above, we are told that God thinks for himself. He chooses to perform certain actions. Uh, again, just read the Bible, and the scriptural proofs are everywhere for, for God's personality, that that God is personal. Also, the Holy Spirit is personal. So some people acknowledge God the Father is personal, but they regard the Holy Spirit as an energy or an impersonal force. So people think of being filled with the Holy Spirit the same way that Luke Skywalker has control of the force, like they have this some sort of special energy, so now they can walk around a, a stadium and perform miracles, right? Um, the Jehovah's Witnesses consider the Holy Spirit an impersonal force. In JW.org, the official Jehovah's Witness website, there's an article entitled, What is the Holy Spirit? So to answer this question, what is the Holy Spirit? The article says, quote, the invisible energizing force that God puts into action to accomplish his will. So again, it's this energizing force, according to Jehovah's Witnesses. In fact, in their translation of the Bible, the New World Translation, there's several instances where this is the case. But Luke one thirty five, this is the angel Gabriel talking to Mary about her, um, she's going to have, she's going to conceive and, and have Jesus. And Mary says, how will this happen to me, a virgin? And 
uh, Gabriel answers, Luke 1.35, in answer, the angel said to her, Holy Spirit will come upon you. So again, in most English translations, well, pretty much all of them, it's going to say the Holy Spirit will come upon you. But for Jehovah's Witnesses, it's just this energy force. So this Holy Spirit energy force will come upon you and, and you will have a child. So this, this, of course, contradicts what we're taught in Scripture. The Holy Spirit, uh, God is spirit, but God is personal. And ultimately, we know God is personal because Jesus is personal. John 14, 9, uh, Jesus said to, to Philip, have, you, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So God is not an impersonal energy force. And this brings me to a difference between the Christian God and pantheism. In pantheism, everything is God. The, the plants, the animals, we, they all everything makes up God. In Christianity, God is everywhere present, but he is personal. So so this tree that I'm looking at out my window is not God, but God is there where the tree is. He, he is. he is present there. Again, God makes decisions. He determines to act. A force or, or energy is impersonal. It doesn't choose sides. Gravity is just gravity. In, in Star Wars, the force is just there to be used by the Jedi and the Sith. Uh, God is very different, okay? And that's why Scripture says to, to people who uh, trust God, to his people, that he is our God, that he is for us. He is, he is actively uh, for us. And so, um, so God is personal. A doxology, to just kind of summarize all of this and, and just dwell on this concept that God is spirit, that he is with you, that we worship God in spirit and truth. We don't have to go to some sort of special location to worship God. We, we worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, this in no way means that, well, I can just sit at my house on my couch and, and, um, and, and watch YouTube, you know, sermons, things like that. Um, no, we are also encouraged in Scripture to go to church, to to meet with other believers and, and fellowship together and worship God corporately. So I'm not getting around that. But there, there is, you know, th- those Christians can meet anywhere and worship God because He is there with them. No matter what mountain or valley they're in, God is there. God is present because God is spirit. So a verse just to to worship and praise God for who he is, Psalm 139, 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me.